Hey, well, good morning, Soma. It's great to, great to be with you all again. It's been, I was trying to think of how many times I've had the, the privilege of being here. I think it's four or five times now I've had the chance. It's good to see familiar faces. Good to see you. Um, again, my name is Philip. This is my son, Gabriel, who came with me today, one of my four kids. Um, and uh, Foster the City, if you're not uh, familiar, um, about seven, eight years ago, I was pastoring a church in San Jose. Um, we, my wife and I, we foster, and uh, we just invited our small congregation to join us in moving towards kids and families that were experiencing foster care. Uh, and then as our church got involved, I started sharing with some buddies of mine that I was praying with on, on Wednesday mornings in San Jose, some other pastors, and we invited them to do the same. And we just started seeing more and more churches jump in and get involved and work together to uh, raise up foster families for kids in foster care and provide support for foster families. And today there's well over 230 churches now working together across the Bay Area and to other parts of California and Nevada that are, that are moving towards kids and families in foster care. It's been super fun to be part of. When we started what we call now today call Foster the City um, uh, seven years ago, if I'm really honest, um, I thought we had come up with like a really cool, like brand new innovative idea. Um, I thought, I honestly, being really honest with you, I thought we were pioneers um, on something. We'd come up, we, we had just come up with this brand new idea, never been done before. And then I went on Google. Um, and I realized after just a few days, wow, <laughs> we, this isn't anything new. In fact, there are movements like Foster the City all over the country. You see it all over the place. Oklahoma, Georgia, Florida, Texas, Washington State, Colorado. I could, the list could go on and on and on and on. Um, which did a couple things. Number one, it humbled me because I realized, oh, you're not quite as innovative as you thought you were. Uh, number two, um, it made me, it, it encouraged me because again, it, I realized um, it, it's like the spirit is moving across America, stirring up his people to move towards a vulnerable. And how cool is it that we could be a part of that? Like we can be a small piece of what the spirit is doing across the country. Um, so no, we were not pioneers. Um, that said, uh, there was a pioneer to movements like Foster the City. Can I t- let me tell you about him. We have a picture here. This is, this is him here. This is the pioneer of movements like Foster City. His name is Bishop Aaron Blake, and I'd love to tell you about him if I could. So Bishop Blake uh, is from Brown, Brown, uh, Brownwood, Texas, uh, Brown County, and he was a pastor of a tiny little country church uh, in, in Brownwood, and uh, he was also, he was bivocational. He was also the at-risk counselor for his local high school. And Bishop Blake, Bishop Aaron Blake, uh, was a kind of counselor that would have just kids in and out of his office all day at the local high school. And one of those boys that would come into his office is a boy named Melvin Johnson. He was a, um, played on the high school football team. Uh, Melvin uh, was in foster care. Uh, and one day, Melvin went into, this is the early 2000s, one day Melvin went into Bishop... Aaron Blake's office, tears streaming down his face. Um, You see, Melvin had jumped from house to house to house to house in the foster care system, and he had lost yet another placement. He was being moved yet again. So he came in, tears streaming down his face. Bishop Aaron Blake didn't really know what to say, but he's like, Melvin, I'm so sorry. If there was anything I could do, man, if, if, if I could take you in, I would. And Melvin said, really? He said, you would do that? And Bishop Blake said, of course I would. And so Melvin, you know, wiped his tears and, and, and went on with the rest of his day, and you know where this is going, right? Um, <laughs> Bishop Blake, not long after that, got a call from a social worker and said, hey, uh, uh, Aaron Blake, um, I'm here with Melvin Johnson, and Melvin said that you said <laughs> that he could come stay with you. 
And, and Bishop Aaron was like, I'm going to need to talk to my wife about that. And so he went home and he talked to his wife, Mary, and he, and he told her the story. You know what Mary said? She said, Aaron, I sure hope you told them yes. So they brought Melvin home. They brought Melvin into their home. It wasn't long after that that the tight end at the high school football team, who was also in foster care, needed a new placement. And so Melvin said, hey, it's okay. You can come stay with us. <laughs> so they brought the tight end. And then the fullback needed a placement. And then the other fullback needed a placement. And then the defensive back needed a placement. And so before long, they had six teenage boys from the high school football team living with them. And listen, before Bishop Blake would welcome them into his home, he would stand out on the sidewalk with the boys and he would say, listen, when you walk into that door, when you walk through that door, you are being grafted into my family. I'm going to love you and I'm going to care for you as if you were my own flesh and blood. You belong, you belong to my family. I'm going to care for you. And he said, you're being grafted into that family as soon as you walk through that door. And then they would walk through the door. And guys, this isn't just something that, that, that Bishop Blake would say. These were not just words. This was tested in small ways and in big ways, including a night, one night um, when one of the boys, in the middle of the night, was in his room playing with matches. And his curtains caught on fire. And within minutes, the entire Blake family was standing outside on their sidewalk watching their house burn to the ground. Um, Bishop Blake tells a story. He said, that I, he said, I was standing there just next to my wife, just wondering what in the world is she thinking? She's watching their house burn. This is the house where they'd raise their biological kids, where they had count, this was their family home, where they had all these countless memories and prized, you know, treasured possessions, their pictures, their year, all of these things burned to the ground. And he said, I was just sitting there thinking, what was my wife thinking? What was she, was she regretting saying yes to this? But what Mary did was she simply looked over at him and said, well, we better get to the store. The boys have school in the morning. We need to get some school supplies. (laughs) So at two in the morning, they were walking up and down the aisles of Walmart, buying clothes for the boys and school supplies. But But the boys didn't actually go to school the next day. They cut their classes that next day. Because they were absolutely certain that once again, social workers were going to show up in their class and tell them that they had lost yet another placement. That they, were, they, were, they had finally crossed the line and they, they were being kicked out of the Blake's home. They're like, surely we've gone too far this time. And so they cut their classes and they hid. But it wasn't the social workers that went and found the boys. It was Bishop Blake. He went and found the boys and he brought them back into the hotel where they were staying. And he said, boys, I told you. I told you you were grafted into this family and that nothing was going to change that. And so that night, they had an impromptu adoption ceremony in their hotel room. Not beautiful and inspiring. You know, the story doesn't end there, though, because I told you Bishop Blake was a, um, he was an at-risk counselor. He was a foster dad, uh, but he was also a pastor. And so he had come now face-to-face with kids in his community that needed loving care. And so he, his heart was moved by that and compelled by that. And so he stood one morning in front of his congregation and he, and he called them to act. And he said, there are kids coming in, just like our boy, there are kids coming into the foster care system today that have been abused or neglected and they need somebody to stand with them. They need somebody to care for them, to show them love and to provide them protection and stability and care. He said, who will stand with us for these kids? That was a question he asked him. Who will stand with us for these vulnerable kids? And guys, guess what? 
a woman stood up in his church and she said, I will. And then another woman stood up and she said, I will, Bishop. Fifteen new foster families were raised up from their tiny little country church in Brown County. They had 39, within months, they had 39 kids from foster care running through the halls in their church. 39 kids. They had, as, as, as word began to spread about what was happening in their little church, other churches in their area said, hey, we want to be a part of this. We want, we want to be involved in this too. And so more churches started getting involved. And in 2004, they got to this place where they had a surplus of foster families in Brown County. They had a waiting list of families rather than a waiting list of kids in need of a home. And they've continued that every single year afterwards to make sure that that's stayed the case. Isn't that awesome? And by the way, this, I mean, the story just goes on because across the country now, there's a movement called Stand Sunday based off of that one sermon where people are invited. This is, it's, in, it's in November. We'll, we'll, we'll talk with Paul. We'll see if we can get that here, right? <laughs> stand Sunday. They celebrate it every November and they encourage the church. Who's going to stand with us for the vulnerable? So now there's thousands and thousands of churches across the country that are being motivated to move towards action. Isn't that awesome? We're not the pioneers. That's the pioneer. <laughs> Those are the footsteps of which we follow. Um, as, I, as I share that story with you, my, um, I can all but guarantee not one of you in this room, not one of you would say, what a fool he was. <laughs> what a fool. He lost his home. His house burnt to the ground. What a waste. Not one of you said that, right? Not one of you thought that. My guess, though, is that many of you said, man, that's inspiring. That, that is a life well lived. I wish I lived a life like that. Am I right? Do you know why? Because that's what we were made for. That's what, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved through our good works, but we are created in Christ for good works. God told Abraham, I'm, I'm going to bless you that you might be a blessing. Right? This is what we were created for. This is what God is working in us and through us for, is that we might live lives like this. We've all, we've all heard the, um, that expression, hurt people hurt people, right? It's also true that healed people heal people. <laughs> Helped people help people. Because of what God has done for us, he's brought us into his family. When we were hurting, when we were vulnerable, we now get to do the same for those around us. So I want to look to get today at, a, at another story um, very similar to the Blakes. I want to look at the story in Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you can open up there with me. Luke chapter 10, we'll start in verse 25. This is going to be a story that many of us are uh, incredibly familiar with, um, but I think that God has something here for us today. So Luke 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verses 25 through 20, 37. Uh, you can follow along up here on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. It says this, it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, well, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, a few things I want to I pull out from this parable today. Here's the first. Jesus gives you and I a mandate. It's very clear. He gives you and I a mandate. It's simple. It's we are to see and to have compassion, to open our eyes to the needs in front of us and to move towards them with compassion. It's very simple. Jesus says, of course, in the beginning, he says that a priest and a Levite came by. And in the scriptures, it says they both saw the man. They didn't happen to miss it. They both saw it very clearly. They saw the need in front of them. And yet what they saw did not move them to compassion. In fact, they went out of their way to avoid the need to avoid the man who was in need. And we know, of course, this is doubly heartbreaking because of who these guys were. These aren't just average, you know, Joes and Jills like you, you and me. These were varsity-level religious leaders, right? These guys knew the scriptures backward and forward better than you and I ever could hope, right? They knew the scriptures. They had massive chunks of the scripture memorized, committed to, committed to their heart. They knew all about God. They knew God's heart. They knew God's character. And yet, what they knew about God was not moving them to become more like God. Their religion was an abstract, disembodied knowledge, not something that was transforming them into people of love and action. Martin Luther King Jr., he said it like this. He said, in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say, oh, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange distinction between body and soul, the sacred and the secular. In other words, Jesus didn't just come to preach to the poor. He also came to lift up the poor. He didn't just come. He cares about our spiritual brokenness, but he also cares about our physical brokenness. A disembodied abstract faith and some ethereal faith, it's not found in the Bible. It's not. This is not just something that we sing about or preach about or talk about within the confines of our Sunday mornings. It is something that is lived out on the ground, in the streets, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Jason Johnson says it like this. He's an author. He says, we cannot rightly raise our hands in worship of a God that steps towards us in our heart and broken and then use those same hands to push the heart and broken of others away. I need to sit with that for a second. I need to sit with that for a second. What will we do with what we see in front of us? Right now across the counties where Foster the City churches are raising up families. There are thousands of kids in foster care. Every day there are kids that are coming into foster care because of abuse, because of neglect. They're, they're being separated from their biological families because it's no longer safe for them to be there in that season. So they're being separated from their families and they are desperate for families that would stand with them and care for them in, that, in their need. 
And, and if, if they don't experience that, if they're placed into group homes or they're, placed, or they're bounced around from home to home, they don't find that loving support system, that loving, stable home, let me tell you just kind of a quick snapshot of what their future may look like. About one out of three kids that age out of foster care, if they're not placed into a loving home, one out of three will end up on the streets. Half will end up with a substance addiction. Half will develop PTSD. You're actually twice as likely to develop PTSD as a child in foster care than a war veteran that's gone through active combat. Twice, can I say that again? Twice as likely to develop PTSD as a kid in foster care than a war veteran that's been shot at. Suicidal tendencies for youth in foster care are four times higher than that of the average youth. I could just spend the rest of our morning going through stat after stat after stat. But, but listen, these aren't, <laughs> this is the point, these aren't just stats, like these are actual stories. I said that there are thousands of kids coming into foster care, but, but we always say that like, these aren't just numbers, these are names. These are names. Every number has a name, every name has a story, every story matters to God, doesn't it? I heard recently, guys, about a couple of kids in one of the counties we serve, um, a three-year-old and an eight-year-old, three-year-old little boy, eight-year-old little girl brother and sister, who have been in a government facility for nine months because they can't find a home. Nine months, three-year-old little boy, eight-year-old little girl, nine months without family. The three-year-old little boy is so developmentally, dis- developmentally delayed that he has yet to walk. Three years old. The eight-year-old has had to be mom to her little brother for so long that she literally doesn't play. She doesn't play with toys. She won't play in the playground. She, her brain has been so wired to be caregiver rather than child. She doesn't play. So the question is, again, who will bring this little boy into their home and into their family and into their life to teach this little boy how to walk? Who will bring this eight-year-old little girl into their home and teach this, this child how to be a child, how to play? What will we do with the needs that we see in front of us? Jesus is calling you and me to open our eyes to see the need in front of us and to move in action. That's exactly what the Good Samaritan does. He sees the mandate. He moves. He sees the need. He moves in compassion. Let's look at the measure of his love. That's the second piece, the measure of his love. He does a few things. First, of course, he puts himself at risk. He puts himself at risk. Listen, we know the story that Jesus is telling us. Um, It's a parable, right? It's a parable, which means it's not true. It's a fictional story. It's a fictional story meant to convey some truths to us. Um, The interesting thing, though, about this specific parable is Jesus does something really unique. He takes this fictional story, but he puts it in an actual place. He actually puts the, the, the story in an actual location that all of his listeners would have been very familiar with. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was actually known as the bloody way or the path of blood, depending on how you translate it, the path of blood, because it was so common for people to get jumped on that road. It was so common for people to get jumped and mugged and attacked and killed on this road. So when, when, when Jesus said, yeah, this priest and this Levite walked on by, they didn't stop and help the man, they walked right on by, the listeners probably would have thought, that's the only, that's the only rational thing to do. You, hurt, you scurry on by. Right? Otherwise, you're putting yourself in danger. If you stop, the attackers might still be nearby. It might even be a trap. Of course, you hurry on by. That's the only reasonable, rational thing to do. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I, I want you to inconvenience yourself and possibly even 
put yourself in harm's way if that's what your neighbor needs. I want you to inconvenience yourself or maybe even knowingly put yourself in harm's way if that's what your neighbor needs from you. Um, when we talk with people about foster care, we often hear these, these very concerns. Like if I step towards this, what is this going to cost me? My time, my money, my sense of security, my ambitions, my plans for my life, the, the dreams that I had for my life. Um, people often ask us like about our, our foster care journey, like whether it was hard or not. We always say it's like it's brutal. With the word we came up with, it's beautiful and it's brutal because um, it's both. It's been it's been one of the greatest yeses we've ever we've ever made, and it's been also one of the hardest things we've ever done. It's been brutal. It's been challenging. Um, but guys, listen. Surely our lives were meant to be more than just about getting to the finish line as safely and comfortably as possible. The second little girl that we brought into our home, her name was Karina. Karina was a, she was seven, uh, beautiful, uh, joy-filled, I mean, just lots of laughter, lots of dance parties in our home. Um, she also had walked through some pretty difficult things in her very short life, and, um, and she had a lot of challenges, a lot of needs, and my wife and I throughout, we only had her for about seven months, but we often felt like we had, uh, did not have what it took to be able to actually meet her needs. Most of those seven months were spent just feeling like utter failures. I remember crying in my pastor's office just saying, I really stink at this foster care thing. Like, we, uh, it was so incredibly hard. Felt like we were failing her. And yet, um, as hard as it was, it was absolutely worth it. I'll, t- I'll tell you why. Um, one of the days that, when she was in our home still, there was this one, one day where we had to take Karina uh, to a visit with her biological mom. That's part of foster care. You're, you're trying to help them stay connected with their biological family in hopes that one day they'll be restored with their with her birth family. And so um, one day we, we took her to a visit with her biological mom, dropped her off uh, for a two-hour visit. We drove down the street to a restaurant to grab some dinner, the rest of my family, and then we were going to come back and pick her up. When we were walking out of the restaurant to our car, we saw that somebody had slashed our tires. No idea who it was or why they did it still to this day. But we were like, shoot, we got to go get Karina. So we called a friend of ours. Her name was Jean. She was a social worker. She was one of our support friends as well, but she was a social worker in the area. We said, Jean, is there any way that you could stop what you're doing and you could go and pick up Karina? Our tires are flat. She said, no problem. Uh, and so she jumped in her car, drove down, picked up Karina. And when she was picking up Karina, Jean, our friend, got into a conversation with Karina's mom, whose name is Tracy. You still following me? Jean and Tracy. They, they, spark, they, 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 they get into this conversation and what sparks is a friendship. And that friendship, by the way, has lasted to this day, now years later. Um, not long after that, Karina would end up going to be back home. She was restored with her biological mom. And again, that friendship between Jean and Tracy, Karina's mom, continued. And Jean um, said, hey, hey, Tracy, you know, you guys are back together as a family. Why don't you come and check out our church? It might be a good place. You might be able to find some community, some support, some encouragement. And guys, Tracy said yes. She brought her family to our church. And she's been a part of our church community for the last five, six years. 
in fact. Uh, shortly into their time of, of coming and finding some support in community, Tracy, Karina's mom, found Jesus. She said yes to Jesus, and we had the opportunity to baptize her on Easter Sunday. Um, that's cool, but that's actually not it yet. So, so hang for a quick second. So that's actually not even it yet. So that was Tracy. Shortly after that, you can throw it back up there, Dan. That's good. Uh, shortly after that, I got a, I got a message from, from Tracy, and she said, Philip, guess what? Um, this, this, is, this is about a year ago. Not, not shortly after. A couple, couple years go by. And she reached out to me, and she said, hey, Philip, guess what? Um, our little Karina... She's placed her faith in Jesus too. And she was asking if you, she wants to be baptized. She's actually quoting scripture at me saying, I need to get baptized. Uh, and she said, we were wondering if you'd be the one to be able to do that. And so this is me here getting to baptize Karina um, just not, not too long ago as my sister in Christ. Isn't that awesome? Um, who, she, she came into our home as a seven-year-old, scared, lonely, hurting little girl. And now she's 12 now today. Um, she's now my sister in Christ. Uh, and by the way, just a little like note to that quick story. It, uh, a couple months after that, um, I was picking up my kids from their kids' class at uh, at their church, and um, and I heard somebody yell my name, and uh, they said Philip, and I turned around, and it was Tracy. It was Karina's mom. She's wearing the kids' ministry shirt. She's now serving in our kids' ministry, so she was actually in my kids' class teaching my kids. So I got a chance for seven months to pour and invest and care for her daughter, and now she's investing in my kids, teaching them about Jesus. Isn't that cool? <laughs> that's, like, that's the goal, right? Um, but again, those seven months, I can tell you, I don't want to be overly dramatic about this, but it felt like seven months of hell in our home. It was really hard as we were caring for her. And again, my wife and I just said, man, I, we just don't know. If we, we, we would say over and over, we don't know if we heard God right on this one. But that day that I baptized Karina, we were getting in the car, and my wife said, she said, Philip, this is easily one of the best days of my life. And she said, she, said, um, she said, I feel like God gave us a glimpse of heaven. We don't always get to see, we don't always get to see what our kind of five loaves and two fish can actually produce. We don't actually always get to see what happens when you kind of walk through the heart and the muck. You don't always get to see, but I think, feel like God gifted us with a little glimpse of that that day. Um, that Jean, that, that social worker friend of ours who invited Tracy, she told my wife, she said, uh, she said, if somebody were to walk up to me today and hand me a million dollars, I would not be happier than I am right now in this moment. Um, which, by the way, none of this is in my notes here, but let me just say, <laughs> in James 1, which is, you know, that, that, that famous passage where it says that, like, pure religion, right, that God sees as, as, as pure and faultless, that true religion is, is caring for the orphans and the widows in distress. In that verse, right before it says that, it's, it basically says... Uh, um, if you are not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word, you'll be blessed in your doing. That's what it's talking about, is what Gene said, is that you could walk up to me and give me a million dollars, I wouldn't be any happier than right now in this moment. You'll be blessed in your doing, not just if you're a hearer, but you're a doer. So I just, I'll say it again. Your life my life was meant to be more than just about getting to the finish line as safely and comfortably as possible. It's meant for so much more than that. Um, so first, that the Samaritan was willing to put himself at risk. But secondly, he was willing to put himself at risk not just to help a dying man, but to help an enemy, to help an enemy. Many of you know this, but the, but the Jews and the Samaritans just couldn't stand each other. They hated each other, right? We, we, you're probably aware of that. Get this, though. It was actually a common practice for the Jews in their, in their prayer at the, at the temple to actually pray against the Samaritans. They would actually pray and ask that God would not hear their prayers. 
They would pray every day in the temple that there would be no Samaritans in the resurrection. That's in their daily prayer at the temple. That is a special kind of hatred, right? So I, I can just imagine if a Samaritan was riding on a donkey, comes across this Jewish man who is lying on the ground, beaten and bloodied, the temptation would have been to say, dude, serves you right. You're just getting what you deserve. You've prayed against me. You've oppressed me. You're getting what you deserve. You do not deserve my help. You don't deserve it. And if I'm honest, probably the greatest obstacle for me in helping other people is asking that question, do you even deserve my help? I'm not proud of this, but it's true. Do they deserve my help? When I see somebody in need, my heart makes an immediate judgment about that person. My brain is wired, and so is yours, by the way. We make immediate assumptions about why they are in the position that they are in. Well, they should have worked harder. They probably made some bad decisions. It's probably drugs. It's, they're probably, you know, if, if, I, if I helped them, it would be a, it'd be a bad use of my, it'd be bad stewardship. It'd be a bad use of my resources. And we justify why they don't deserve our help. But Jesus doesn't stand for this. In fact, when the expert of the law actually asks Jesus the question, he's, you know, he's basically saying, surely I don't have to love everybody. Who is my neighbor that I have to love? I can just imagine Jesus bristling at that question. Because Jesus will not carve up humanity into those who are and are not worthy of love. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, he says, he says this. He says, by depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. So the Samaritan put himself in harm's way. He moved towards not just a dying man, but moved towards his enemy. And then finally, he gave his own resources. The Samaritan took what he had. He took his wine, he took his oil, and he cleaned and he disinfected the wounds. And he bound up the broken body and he placed the man up on his own donkey. And then he took him to an inn. And then he took out his wallet and he gave two denarii, which by the way is no chump change. That's the equivalent of two months rent. He gave two denarii to the innkeeper to make sure the man had all the time and the resources that he needed to recover. And he even told the innkeeper, I'm coming back, I'm going to check on him. Make sure he's being taken care of well. This is the kind of generosity and the compassion that you and I are being invited into. Jesus says, go and do likewise. Um, I was planning on showing you a video today. I'm sure I'm over my time. So I'm going to skip the video if I could, um, just for time's sake. You can always, if you go to fostercity.org, there's lots of cool stories and about life change and impact. You can watch that there. Um, I'll ask you this question, then I've got one more point I want to share. Um, the, the question is, um, obviously, what is God in leading you to invest in the lives of your neighbors? Whether that's, you know, there's, there's somebody that, that he's put on your heart, whether that's a friend whose marriage is in, in, in trouble, a person who just comes across your path, that person out on the street, that, that, that invitation to care for kids who are coming into foster care. If you are interested in getting involved with Foster the City in any way, maybe you're interested in learning what would it look like to bring a, a child into my home and care for them in that season of where, where they're struggling. Uh, maybe you want to support a family through uh, babysitting or meals or encouragement or prayer or, or uh, giving rides, mowing a lawn. You want to come along some, some really practical ways. You can become a support friend for 
a foster family. And I, I want to honor you. There are many of you that have already taken steps to get involved, and I want to honor you for what, you for what you've done and tell you that there's more to be done. So if you're interested in getting involved in any way, your next step is just simply to fill out this card. Okay, Kim, Kim has them in the back there, and, and, and Kim is here. She's the local Foster City ministry leader. We call it an advocate. You can, you can talk with her, you know, if, if you're thinking about it next week, you say, you know, I do want to get involved. She's going to be here, and you can chat with her then. But today, I want to encourage you, consider filling out this next step card. All we're going to do is send you an email. We'll just tell you about some information on meetings we have coming up that you can attend. Okay, that's that. I have one final thought that we have to, we have to touch on. Okay, we've seen the mandate. We've seen the measure of love. Uh, but let me close with the means, the means of this love. It's so important that we hear this uh, because if we stop here and we go no further, all that I will have managed to do today is to place a burden that is too heavy for you to bear on your shoulders. Um, For years, when I would read this story in Luke 10 about the Good Samaritan, it would not inspire me, it would not motivate me, it would not compel me, it would not liberate me to live a life of compassion and generosity all it would do is crush me. Um, but I think that as the, the more that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this story, the, the more that I think maybe I've been missing it a little bit with this parable. Um, I might have been reading the parable a, a bit wrong. Um, the key, please turn on your, I know it's hot, it's midday. Turn on your thinking caps here for just a minute, okay? I need everybody to hear me on this. This is really important. The key to understanding this parable is where the Jewish man is placed in the story, okay? If Jesus would have placed the Jewish man on the donkey and the Samaritan beaten and bloodied on the ground, that would have made sense, okay? That would have made sense, especially when you consider the question. The, guy, the, guy, the, the expert in the law said, Jesus, I want to be saved. I want to inherit eternal life. What do I have to do? What neighbor do I have to love, and if, and if Jesus would have said, okay, imagine you're on your donkey and you're going down the road and you see the Samaritan beaten and bloodied on the ground, I want you to help even him. I want you to get down off your donkey. I want you to come down, stoop over him, use your resources. Don't be racist anymore. Don't look down on him. I want you to help even him. Even the Samaritan is the neighbor that you are to love. If he would have said that, would have made sense. Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say that. He put the Samaritan on the, on the donkey. He put the Israelite on the ground. Jesus is saying, do you want to know how to be saved? You really want to know how to inherit eternal life? You want to know how to be saved? You have to see that you are the man on the ground. You are the man. You are the one that is hurting and broken and lonely and feel like hope is all lost. And you need someone who you once saw as an enemy to come down and to save you. The expert of the law had been trying his whole life to justify himself before God. To follow the law well enough that he might be saved. To do enough good works. To, to live a, a holy enough life. Am I obedient enough? And by the way, I so resonate with this man. I so resonate with this line of thinking. It's so easy for me to fall into the trap. Have I been good enough yet? Have I helped enough foster kids yet? Have I, have, I, have I loved my neighbor well enough yet, Jesus? Am I accepted yet? This is such an easy lie for me to fall into. Every single morning I pray this kind of long prayer as I'm driving. Um, but one of, the, one of the lines in that prayer I say, God, um, help me to live with confidence knowing that there is no mistake that I can make today that will cause you to love me any less. And help me to live with humility, 
knowing there is no accomplishment that will make you love me more. I have to pray that prayer every single morning because every morning I wake up again with the temptation to fall into that lie of, God, have I been good enough yet? Have I been good enough? That we have to work our way to God. Listen, please hear me. Jesus was not telling the man, and he is not telling you and me today, that if you want to be saved, you must become the good Samaritan. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, I am the good Samaritan. I am the good Samaritan. I have come down to where you are. And I'm going to put myself in harm's way. Not, not, not even just in harm's way. I'm going to know. I know that it will cost me my life. But I know that you're broken. And I know that you're hurting. And I know that you're alone. And all hope seems lost. But I've come with my wine and with my oil. In other words, my body, my blood and my spirit. And I've come to make you clean. I've come to bring you to life and make you whole. Guys, Jesus is the good Samaritan. You follow? You and I can never become a good Samaritan until we foresee that we need a good Samaritan. And when we get this, bit by bit, that when we see that we are sinners saved by grace and grace alone, then when we do see somebody who is in front of us who is beaten and bloodied and broken and hurting, we can see that we're looking in a mirror. (laughs) We can't look down on them anymore. We can't be callous towards them or uncaring towards them anymore because we know that that's us. That was us. You can say, that was me too. That was my story. It's only when we see Jesus as our good Samaritan that we can, bit by bit, become like the good Samaritan. You follow? I'll close with this. And the, the worship team can come back up if you'd like. Um, every time I read a Bible story, I have this thing. You probably do this too. I try to place myself in the story. Like, which, which person do I resonate with the most in that story? Do you guys do that sometimes? I try to think. I already told you I see Jesus now as the good Samaritan. Um, I, at one point in my life, I was that, that beaten and bloody man on the ground. He's, he's lifted me up. He's cleansed me. And um, can, I t- can I tell you now who I resonate the most with in this story? I resonate the most with the innkeeper. Jesus is bringing people to me that need loving care. And just like the, the, the Samaritan with the denarii, he has given me all of the resources that I need to care for them. And one day he's going to come back, and I'm going to need to give an account for how I cared for the people with whom he's entrusted me. And I think the same is true for you. I know that I've never brought in six teenage boys into my home. Our house is never fully burnt to the ground. I say fully, it did catch on fire in December, but we're, we're all right. <laughs> the house is still standing. But, uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Love it. I planned that. They did, we did it perfectly. We practiced over and over and again, and we nailed it. Um, the, uh, I, I've never had six teenage boys in our home. Um, but I will follow in the footsteps of Bishop Aaron Blake, and I will ask that same question. Who will stand with us for the vulnerable? Whether it's kids in foster care, again, if it's that friend whose marriage is falling apart, if it's the person that happens to cross your path, will you stand for the vulnerable? 
Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes, if you mind. Uh, I'm going to pray here in just a moment, but before I do, let me say this. I told you, I, I feel like I resonate in this season of my life with the innkeeper, but for some of you today, perhaps you resonate with the man on the ground. You feel beat up. There's some pain in your life. You feel attacked. You feel lonely. Maybe you feel like all hope is lost. Just with your eyes closed, if that's you today, right, right now where you are, I'd like you to do something a little bit different for me today. Again, eyes closed, I'd like you to try something. I want you, in, in, in your imagination, I'd like you to place yourself in that scene on the road as that man. You're laying there and you notice the, the, the pain you're feeling. I want you now to imagine Jesus your good Samaritan, as he comes down that road and he sees you. He comes down to you. As you imagine the scene, I just want you to think for a moment, how is he looking at you? How is Jesus looking at you? Imagine him in his kindness now, just tending gently to your wounds. Friends, you're not alone. You have nothing to fear. God, I pray that every one of us would know your loving kindness in this way, that we would experience the healing that comes through, again, your wine and your oil, your, your, your blood and your spirit. God, I, I pray that every one of us would um, know the great salvation that has come through your cross and your resurrection. Um, God, I pray that if there's somebody here that's struggling, God, that they would find great confidence knowing that our future has already been determined because of the cross and the resurrection. We have nothing to fear. And yet, God, in this moment of real pain and real struggle, um, God, I pray that they would sense your loving presence with them. God, that they would, that they would um, feel your presence, that they would experience your strength and your comfort, that they would experience a deep level of peace, a peace that surpasses understanding, a joy, God, that is beyond description. God, I pray that they'd find great comfort in one another and comfort in you. God, we love you. Thank you for your great goodness to us. God, thank you for the opportunity as well to be that innkeeper, God, to be your hands and feet, God, to, to, um, to, to love well those whom you love. God, I pray that you would show each and every one of us how you might call us to move in action towards people that are in need. Help us to see and have compassion. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.